Well, thank you for that meditation and song, and I hope that that will be your prayer, all of us, that we would seek and be responsive as God leads us and how He would have us to live and be involved in serving Him and touching a, a lost world. It's, it's such a privilege to be with you this morning. It's a, a rare occasion, unfortunately, uh, in my travels about the Southern Baptist Convention and around the world that I so infrequently have the opportunity to be up in the Northwest, but I always look forward to that opportunity. And uh, at our mission conference this weekend, I was just... Uh, just uh, reflecting that it's the first time I got off the plane and that great big sun was shining and I thought, we've been diverted. We're somewhere other than Seattle. Uh, never occasioned that before. And it's just been a beautiful weekend. And some of you have been involved in our mission conference at First Baptist Church Lakewood. And uh, I appreciate uh, Ron Shepard's leadership and organizing that. And it's such an encouragement just to know of the vision of churches here in the Puget Sound Association, that you have such a, a, a missionary perspective on reaching the people uh, around you, but beyond that uh, to the world. And we're so grateful for your your, your vision and commitment to missions for your support of the International Mission Board and involvement overseas and supporting our efforts through the Co-Opter Program and Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And it's just a, a privilege to be able to, to be with you and share with you this morning. And, you know, I found that uh, as, as Southern Baptists, uh, we're, we're quite acquainted with uh, missions uh, uh, task, our, our Great Commission task. Uh, we take pride in being a denomination that sends out more than 5,000 international mission boards, missionaries currently serving in more than 194 countries. And God is blessing in unprecedented ways uh, around the world. I was traveling uh, uh, recently in Central Asia, an area of the world where I'm still intrigued that we even have missionary personnel. In those uh, places, uh, Islamic countries that were so long a part of the Soviet Union and prohibited of religious freedom. But as we traveled in uh, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Azerbaijan uh, and those republics, I was just thrilled to see churches now being planted and people responding to the gospel and a, a Christian witness uh, spreading uh, throughout those spiritually destitute uh, areas of the world. And it was the last night of my trip. I was preparing to return home the next day. And I was having dinner with our regional leadership team. And I asked them, how many of the people groups in Central Asia have been evangelized in terms of a church being planted in that language and culture and now multiplying a Christian witness? And they knew instantly. They said, so far we've reached 23 people groups here in Central Asia. And and my heart just was filled with praise to God for what He was doing and that we could have a part uh, in that breakthrough uh, in contemporary missions today. But then I asked the wrong question. Knowing they were doing demographic research to stay on the cutting edge of our mission task, I asked, well, how many people groups in Central Asia have yet to be engaged with the gospel? And the regional leader didn't immediately respond to my question. In fact, he lowered his head, and I thought he was simply thinking, calculating a response to my question. 
But when he looked up, tears filled his eyes and his voice was choked with emotion. He said, Jerry, we can identify more than 300 people groups here in Central Asia alone, as best we can determine, have not yet even heard the name of Jesus. Now that's hard for us to comprehend in this age of modern technology and communication that there would be whole people groups and cultures isolated culturally and geographically in places that have not been penetrated with the gospel, where there's no church, there's no Bible in their language, there are no Christian believers, there's no missionary yet sharing the gospel with them. But I'll never forget his next statement. Emotionally, he said, you know the most difficult thing about being a regional leader responsible for our Southern Baptist work here in Central Asia is every year in our annual planning, looking at the limited personnel and resources and having to determine which of these people groups will be deprived of hearing the gospel yet another year and how many multitudes will die without ever hearing the good news of God's love. And I came home not filled with pride at what God was doing through our missionaries, but a heart was deeply burdened and questioning by what criteria should any people be deprived of hearing the gospel. When God has blessed us so richly, in numbers, in resources, and the potential in our lives of sharing the gospel with the whole world. And I want to focus your attention this morning on just one little verse of Scripture in 1 John 3.17. It's a a verse that I wish God had never inspired to be included in the Bible because every time I read it, it, it pierces my heart with conviction. But 1 John 3.17 says, But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, I'm going to get back to that in just a moment. But, you know, if there's any verse of Scripture a good Southern Baptist knows next to John 3.16... It would be the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, where Jesus tells us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Now, it's interesting how we, we rationalize uh, that, that, that Great Commission passage uh, to apply to whatever we happen to do and witness in ministry, ignoring the fact that is to disciple and bring into the kingdom of God to make followers of Jesus people from every tribe and language and, and nation. It's not unusual for someone to come up to me at a church or a mission conference and say, well, Dr. Rankin, I would be willing to go as a missionary, but God has not called me. Now, I've never figured out how to respond to that tactfully. Uh, <laughs> What I want to say is, uh, excuse me, do you have the same Bible I have? Uh, To whom do you think the Great Commission was given? 
just a handful of disciples on a hillside in Galilee or, or just an elite few among all of God's people who happen to have a burning bush or Damascus Road experience and apart from that mystical call, we're exempt. I mean, never mind that here's a lost world that God yearns to save and draw to Himself. And here's a Christian who says, and I would be willing to go, but the reason I don't is to blame God for not calling me. I don't think so. You see, we failed to take in consideration that a Great Commission task was intended for every believer, for every church. It's not an option. No one is exempt. And it's not a matter of who's to go and who's to stay, but what is our place in fulfilling God's mission that He's given to His people, to His church? Uh, it's, uh, you know, and I think Jesus realized that it's not a matter of understanding our mission. We understand that the God's heart for everyone to experience John 3.16, to know that He loves us, that He gave His Son for our salvation, that if whosoever will call on the name of the Lord and believe can be saved. And He yearns to draw people into His kingdom. We understand the consequences of lostness of people that do not know Jesus, that do not have an opportunity to believe. But the problem is one of motivation to be involved in our mission task. And I think Jesus realized this because, you know, so many times we look at that Great Commission as here was Jesus gathered His disciples on a hillside in Galilee, having completed His earthly ministry, had died and rose again, and now ready to ascend to the Father. As if it was kind of an afterthought, you know. Oh, by the way, it just occurred to me. Why don't you go and make disciples of other nations? No, it wasn't an afterthought. It, it represented the heart and mission of God from the foundation of the world. It's why he called Abraham to leave his home and family so that through his seed, the descendant, the Messiah, all the nations would be blessed. But Jesus didn't give that great commission mandate till the very last moment of his time upon earth with his followers, with his disciples. But you see reflected in his teaching and ministry preparing them to be motivated and compelled for the moment when that mission would be relegated to them. For you see, the first command Jesus gave to his disciples was not the command to go and to make disciples and to be witnesses. But the first command that you read Jesus giving to his followers was the command to look. To look. Remember in his conversation with the woman at the well in the fourth chapter of John, the disciples had been into the city to buy food. And as they returned, Jesus said to them in, in verse 35, you know, you say not there yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already unto harvest. He wanted them to see the world as God sees it. Because we would never be motivated to reach out on mission to reach a lost world till we were willing to open our eyes and see a world that needed to know Jesus. On that trip to uh, Central Asia, 
I was talking with one of our mission personnel who teaches at a technical school in Nakus, which is a little city up in the northwest corner of Uzbekistan among the Karl Kapak people. And he was telling me that the school has a school song, the words of which go something to the effect of the name of the school is the center of Nakus. Nakus is the center of Karl Kapak land. Karl Kapak land is the center of Uzbekistan. And Uzbekistan is the center of the world. Now, it's probably never occurred to you that Uzbekistan is the center of the world. Why? Because that's not our world. That's not where we live. Our world centers around us, our family, our community, our concern. But folks, when, when we're told God so loved the world, that's not just our world of expressways and, and shopping malls and beautiful homes. It's a world of refugees in Darfur that are being slaughtered and genocide. It's a world of people living in despair in war-torn places like Iraq and Afghanistan. It's a world of more than a billion people who are still in unreached people groups and spiritual darkness and hopelessness. That's the world God loves and died to save but we'll never be motivated and do anything to reach that world until we're willing to open our eyes and see that world beyond our own egotistical provincialism of where we live. And Jesus would say to us, open your eyes, see a world that is lost, see a world in darkness, see a world that needs to be harvested for Jesus Christ. Because we'll never do anything about missions until we see the lost world, until we see the lost around us in our community. But you know, Jesus said to his disciples, see the fields that are white unto harvest. He wanted them to see a world in which God was at work. And as I shared at our mission conference this week, God is at work today as never before in Christian history to fulfill his mission and draw the nations to him. I used to say that the last decade of the 20th century saw the greatest advance in global evangelization than all 200 years of mission history since William Carey went to India. With the breakup of the Soviet Union, with discovering creative access strategies to take the gospel into restricted countries, we just saw an amazing advance beyond what we would have ever imagined. Currently, more than half of our 5,600 missionaries serve in countries and places that prohibit a missionary presence. But through creative access and, and professional skills and teaching and humanitarian work, they're able to go in and plant their lives in an incarnational witness and meet a spiritual need that would not otherwise be touched. God is using global events, the warfare, political disruption, economic uncertainty, natural disasters to turn the hearts of people to spiritual answers that only Jesus can provide. And God is moving as never before. After 9-11, I mean, just suddenly our world changed, was just fraught in an elusive battle against a global terrorist enemy, suicide bombers. But our missionaries throughout the Muslim world in Northern Africa and Middle East 
said people are expressing disillusionment in their Islamic faith. They're asking questions that reflect a search for hope and security that only Jesus can provide. And God is using that to open the doors and crack the barriers to that last formidable barrier of global evangelization. And some of our most remarkable church growth is happening in the Muslim world today. When we entered the 21st century, we had just seen our missionaries report a record 300,000 new believers baptized. For the next five years, they reported an average of more than a thousand new believers a day being baptized. And last year reported over 600,000. For the last eight years, we've seen each year more than a hundred unreached people groups engaged with the gospel of Christ. God is moving as never before. And he would say to us, look beyond your self-interest, your own little narrow provincialism. See a world beyond the newscast and the newspaper headlines See a world in which God is at work and providing an opportunity as never before because we'll never be motivated to fulfill His mission until we're willing to see that world as God sees it. But even after Jesus commanded His disciples to lift up their eyes and look on the fields, He still didn't command them to witness or to go or make disciples. In fact, the next command that you read in the teachings of Jesus to his followers was the command to love. Remember as he was gathered with his disciples in the upper room, you find in in John 13, verse 34, he said to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Uh, A short time later, a, a young Pharisee asked him the question, which is the greatest? command. Uh, that answer is recorded in, in Luke, in which Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.5 to say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your, your strength. But then he hastened to say, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And just to make sure there was no misunderstanding, he told the story of the Good Samaritan. To make it clear that neighbor we are to love is not just uh, people like us in our neighborhood. People that we enjoy fellowshipping with at, at church. But it's people of other cultures and races and even antagonistic relationships. For you see, love is other centered. You love your wife, your children, your family. You give yourself to them. You're more concerned for them and their welfare and their needs than yourself. But what about a lost world? What about your neighbor in Africa, in Asia, Latin America, in Europe? You see, love makes possible the phenomenon of sacrifice of being willing to sacrifice your own plans, your own needs, your own comfort and security for the sake of the needs of others. And that's why Jesus commanded them to love, to love their neighbor, to love a lost world, the Samaritans, 
the people who were not like them because they would never fulfill his mission if they didn't look and willing to see that world and love that world to give of themselves. I used to think that beating people over the head with the Great Commission would motivate us to, to do missions. I mean, after all, any Christian ought to be conscientious about doing what our Lord commanded us to do. And uh, Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations. And you just keep reminding us we ought to be offering Him our lives and say, okay, I want to be obedient. I'll go and, and we'll give more generously and sacrificially and pray for missions and peoples. But, but it doesn't motivate us. We aren't motivated out of a sense of guilt or, or obligation. And I came to understand this in reading a book on evangelism by a gentleman called, named J.E. Connor. He made this statement. It really grabbed my attention. He said, the Great Commission is sufficient authority to send us after the lost, but it's not sufficient motivation. And he goes on to explain, it's not the authority of an external command, even from our Lord but the impulse of an indwelling presence that sends us after the lost. And you see, it's only when we've come into a relationship with Christ that we recognize that we're sinners saved by grace, that we're recipient of His mercy. And we love the Lord with all our heart and mind as we gather together as believers, as this church, and we sing praises that they're not just perfunctory, they're not just words, they're flowing from a heart that loves God with all of our heart. It's only then that our lives become a channel of His love to others and a willingness to demonstrate to a lost world and giving ourselves to fulfill His mission to bring them to Christ. But even after Jesus commanded us to look and to love, He still didn't command us to go. That's not why we consider going as missionaries, because He calls us in man. He, he actually commanded us to live our Christian faith and our life in a way that will make disciples that will draw others into the kingdom of God. Now, I have to kind of swallow hard to acknowledge this because I'm out there appealing to people to go to the mission field and consider missionary service and the needs of reaching a lost world. But if you're familiar with the grammar of the Great Commission, there's only one transitive, active, imperative verb in that passage, and it's make disciples. That's what we're commanded to do. You see, he taught his disciples a new lifestyle. It was no longer the ritual Jewish legalistic system of obeying the law and this is how you ought to live. It was a life that was now transformed by God's Holy Spirit that would be lived out in a way that would be an incarnational witness reflecting a living Savior that would draw people into the kingdom and, and disciple them and become followers. And uh, how do you become disciples? The rest of the verb forms are participles. By baptizing and teaching what Jesus taught us to do. Well, how do you make disciples of all nations? Obviously, by going. I mean, how can they see and know that incarnational witness of what Jesus can do unless you go and live among a lost people? I discovered a verse recently that 
I, I can't believe I overlooked for so many years in reading the Bible. And Ezekiel 36.23 says, Then shall the nations know that I am the Lord thy God when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Why does he call us to go? So they can see the reality of the Christian life lived out among them. So they can see the holiness of God, of one who's been transformed and redeemed. They'll never know that he is God till they see the evidence and reality in someone who is a living witness among them. But you see, it wasn't a command to go. It wasn't an obligation. It was an expectation. Follow me carefully here. When you look, obey his command to look and see a lost world. When you both obey his command to love a lost world, then it's not because we're obligated and commanded. It's an expectation then we will go to live out the gospel and make disciples of every nation, even to the ends of the earth. Now look with me again at that little verse in 1 John 3.17. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Actually, this verse confronts us with four questions. The first question, what do you have? Do you have this world's goods? Now, you might readily answer, well, not as much as six months ago when the economy took a nosedive. <laughs> but let's be honest. God has blessed and prospered us as Americans. We indeed have this world's goods. There's probably no one here that has to be concerned about a roof over your head, clothes to wear, food to eat, like most of the people of our world. God has blessed us with this world's goods. But you know the greatest good you can have in this world is to know Jesus Christ, your salvation. There is no material benefit or security that's better than to be saved, to be born again, to know Jesus. Do you have this world's good? Do you have the greatest good that you can know in this world? Is that not what we have? Well, the second question then is, what do you see? Do you see your brother in need? Now, when I read this, I typically go to the inner city, the impoverished people, the homeless, uh, you know, in the mega cities and... Certainly God wants us to minister to the less fortunate in our communities around us. But what greater need does our brother of humanity have than the need to know Jesus? Do you see their lostness? Do you see your brother in Africa and Asia lost, hopeless, condemned to an eternity without Christ? Do you see their spiritual need? Are you willing to see them? Well, the third question that's implied then is, what do you give? Having this world's good, seeing your brother in need, what do you do about it? Or do you close your heart, as some versions say, your heart of compassion against them? I received a letter a few years ago from someone, I think in Texas, who had a prayer ministry 
And he wrote and said, Dr. Rankin, I pray for you and the International Mission Board. I, I pray for our, our missionaries systematically. And said, I've been reading about all the unreached people groups and the need for more missionaries, the need for more churches to reach out in partnership with the International Mission Board and multiply our witness to, to reach the lost peoples of the world. And he said, I've been praying Matthew 9.38 where we're told to pray to the Lord of the harvest that He will thrust out laborers into the harvest. And then He asks, Why isn't God answering my prayer? Why isn't He calling out the missionaries that are needed? I didn't know how to answer Him. I've been wondering the same thing myself. But after praying and meditating on it, I responded and I said, I believe God is answering your prayer. He is calling out the laborers. But the laborers are not responding because of a closed mind or a calloused heart or a reluctant will. God's mission is intended for every believer. But let me ask, very confrontationally, why have you never considered that he could use you? Is it because your mind has been closed to the possibility? Have you yielded to the deception and the myth that I'm not qualified, there's nothing we can do, or God has chosen not to call me, when in reality we've just chosen to follow our own plans and hold on to our own lifestyle and have been closed to even consider that God may want us in his mission, even where we live? Or could it be because of a, a calloused heart? We've just allowed our heart to become indifferent and hardened to a lost world without Jesus, as if it doesn't have anything to do with us. Or could it be because of a reluctant will that is just unwilling to surrender and trust God to lead us and to use us? What do you give? What do you have? What do you see? What do you give? For you see, they're all answered by the fourth question. How much do you love? For how can you say the love of God is in you? And close your heart against a lost world, your brother in need. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts very personally and intimately and dispel the myth that we're not called to missions. That the task of fulfilling the Great Commission is only for an elite few who happen to go as missionaries. Lord, I pray that you would convict us with a new perspective, that we've been saved for this purpose, that as the people of God is your church, that we've been called to fulfill your mission. Not necessarily an obligation to go, Lord, I pray that today you would find us obedient to your command to look and willing to see a world beyond our own 
narrow provincialism. A world as you see it. And Lord, I pray that we would be obedient to your command to love. To love each other. To love a lost world. To the point of willingness to give ourselves. And then Lord, may we be obedient to that command. To live in a way that will follow wherever you lead. That will live out the reality of Jesus in an incarnational witness. Lord, you may want us right here in northwest Washington. This corner of our own country. If we can never be sure we're in the center of your will until we're willing to say, wherever you lead, I'll go. May that be our surrender and our obedience. Because we love you with all of our heart. We love the world that you love and gave your life to save. In Jesus' name, amen.